Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Holsch Fidelity, where we delve into the life, music and enduring legacy of one of the most iconic figures in music history, Elvis Presley. Presley grew up immersed in gospel music, country, and rhythm and blues, shaping his musical influences from an early age. His groundbreaking sound and electrifying performances revolutionised the music industry, making him a global sensation during the 1950s and beyond. Elvis Presley swiftly became a cultural icon and a symbol of rebellion and youthful energy. His fusion of rockabilly, country, and rhythm and blues not only transformed the music landscape, but also broke racial barriers, introducing African-American musical elements to a broader audience. Beyond his musical prowess, Elvis's impact extended into films, where he starred in numerous movies that contributed to his legendary status as a multifaceted entertainer. His influence on music, fashion and cultural norms continues to reverberate, solidifying his place as one of the most significant figures in the history of popular music. For steadfast fans who have remained devoted for more than six decades, Elvis rightfully earned his title as the King of Rock and Roll. Yet, for others, comprehending the reasons behind his fame and his significant place in cultural music history might come as a revelation. Joining me tonight, my main man. <laughs> what is that? It's me, Tick. <laughs> you don't have to introduce me. Ah, oh, Tick's my name's back. on the thing already. Uh, so Tick's the one bloke that, that I do Zoom meetings with as we, uh, as we chat so I can see his melon and uh, he was just sitting yeah, back in a... I was pulling that face for about five minutes. <laughs> Good to have you on again, mate. Yeah, good to be back as always. Yeah, we're, we're going to some fun. Yes. Uh, yeah, I think Elvis Presley is a lot of fun. We're going back to an era that we haven't touched on. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you that. Do you reckon we'll go back further than this at any stage with anyone? Like 1954, we've got as Elvis starting his career. Um, it can't be too much before Elvis, right? Well, Chippy is a massive jazz fanatic. So, okay. you know, the John Coltrane's, Miles Davis, Davis etc. So I don't know when they kicked off, but I assume they would have been yeah. maybe around that time or even a little bit earlier. So who knows? Yeah, so there's potential. There is potential, but, you know, this one will take some beating for a while, I'd say. Yeah, but, I reckon so. Yeah. I've got, I got to get more of those, those more contemporary out. But I did choose this, I suppose. <laughs> That's right. This I'm is not, all on I'm you. I'm not mad about it. <laughs> it's, been, it's been a lot of fun. And... Uh, I just probably have to take a minute here. I'm just listening to the last of his 780 songs just as we're talking right now. So I started when we chose it about four weeks ago. Yeah, just finally get getting through it at the moment. Oh, that's 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 he wonderful. Sounds, so sounds fat in this one. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, you know, is that enough? One play of each and you can nail it down to five? Yeah, pretty sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, I mean, straight off the bat, seven – is that how many he has all up? 780, I think it was, yeah. I think I'd guessed 700 when we spoke at the end of Ballpark Music and, yeah, I, look, I think it was around 780 or something like that. Yeah. And what I've come to realise is – so many of those were during his movie era where I think he was just pumping out, mm. you know, 20 songs in a movie or whatever and yeah. they were 100%. You know, you know that the 100% hits album? Well, it was 100% <laughs> trash, I'm pretty sure, during that period. It was just a, yeah. just a little music-making machine, do yeah. this, do that. and I think I think you could count on your, your two hands how many great songs out of that movie era, you know, considering the hundreds that were there. To think that it's probably yeah. only seven or eight that really stand the test of time, it's really yeah. It was, it's kind of, it's kind of like Steve Smith, you know, missing a year of his career for <laughs> um, the sandpaper thing. Like it's it's a similar idea. He kind of lost a big chunk of his career mm. doing this kind of crap during the middle of it. Yeah, well, I know both you and I we sat down at different times and watched the Searcher documentary and mm. I highly recommend yep. anyone out there that does want to dig a little bit deeper on Elvis. I really enjoyed this doco. It goes for three and a half hours, but it's it's put together mm. really well and when we talk about the movie part and, you know, how he had a bit of a decline, well, a big decline in his music and even mm. his popularity during that time and his credibility. But his life as a whole was incredibly manipulated, would you say? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, well, it's it's funny, you know, when you look at the movie itself and you, and you go, that was very heavily based around the Colonel and his control over Alvis. It's not as focused in The Searcher. You know, it mm. kind of comes up in little bits and pieces. You kind of get a bit more of a whole breadth of his life from start to finish in that than what you do really from the movie. It's The movie mm. is so heavily focused on, obviously, obviously his career is a big part of it, but The Searcher you kind of get a little bit more mm. behind the scenes stuff, which is really interesting. Yeah, it, it still it validates a lot of the, the, the Colonel Parker stuff, but... Yeah, I like how it touches more on his family side and that incredible connection he has with his mum. And I don't know, mm. just the person he is, he's so likeable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it seemed like such a great dude. Like like you said before, you kind of – most of us are born after his career. Most of the listeners of this pod probably are born, if not after his career. <laughs> you know, they mm. weren't really in the consciousness of music at that time, and you probably don't really get a good grasp of what he was actually like as a person. He was so generous with his time, his money, all those kind of things. He was just seemed like a really, really good dude. Mm. I, I know I said in, the, in that introduction about his input and how he changed music at the time. There's no doubting mm. he's one of the most influential people in music history. And at that time in America in particular, different races, their music was... You kept a separate kind yeah, of thing. It, yeah, it was they were both it was, isolated. Yeah, you never crossed lines. Not you know, if you were if you were black, you listened to black music. If you're white, you listen to white music and mm. never the and, and, never and the two shall meet kind of thing. And all performers around that time, they basically stood there and performed. That's that's how the delivery was. So he, he not only yeah. started to to bring in, you know, the rhythm and blues and the, the African American music in with the you know the the gospel and the the folk and everything else, but 
he started to bring some liveliness, some energy with how he actually delivered it. And well, wasn't, wasn't that the story is that when he first performed That's All Right, people were calling into the station asking who's this black who's this new black artist I didn't know that like, I think that was one of that was one of the yarns that kind of went went around when he first kind of hit the radio is that all these people were saying the same thing they thought he was a, a black artist different races of people just weren't even exposed to these different styles so for him to bring it in and essentially allow the the full population to enjoy it at once like mm. you can't really put a finger on how huge that is in the scheme of things yeah Giving a, it gave a more of a voice, you know, to a wider audience as well mm. for a lot of those artists and that style of music. Yeah, you mentioned before about, you know, how influential he was and, and usually at this point we would talk about, you know, what were his influences. But yeah. I, I almost feel like that's unjust to say, well, here's who influenced Elvis because I think you mentioned it before, gospel was his biggest influence. But I just wanted to touch on a few bigger bands that, he influenced, you know, just a few little tidbits there that I'd kind of research or, or kind of knew in some capacity. I knew John Lennon, I think he often said, like, before Elvis, there was nothing. Mm-hmm. Elvis is like the god of popular music, realistically. You know, there was music obviously existed, but it wasn't this kind of behemoth that yes. it became. He invented, in a way, pop music or he was <laughs> the machine of Elvis made pop music a thing. Obviously, Freddie Mercury was a big fan. He did the the song Crazy Little Thing Called Love as a tribute to, to Elvis. Going back to some of the bands that we've already covered, Michael Hutchins did a version of Baby Let's Play House. Well, you may go to college, may go to school, and I think that's on his solo album, so it's a pretty good version. I've I've always I've known about it for quite some time, and it's it's probably one of those things where I'd listen to and just like the song before I knew it was even an Elvis song because I was just so invested in excess. And the other big band, Led Zeppelin of mine, they were very heavily influenced by Elvis. And um, there was a story when they, of Robert Plant saying that the first time listening to Elvis was like an opiate for him. It was just so, it was just something else that that didn't, I think it was Hound Dog that he heard or something like that. And it was just this massive deal for him. And they told a story when they met Elvis that they very rarely did sound checks, but when they did do a sound check, they would always play Elvis songs. The song that he used to sing was Love Me. Treat me like a fool, treat me mean and cruel, but love me. Bring my faithful heart, tear it up. Yeah, and yeah. I, I did send that through to saying, "Hey, have a listen of this." Yeah, well, now I'll I can bring it up. now I can really picture Plant using it to so that it, he uses all his vocals before he has to go yeah. on stage. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I thought that were pretty cool little tidbits yeah. of who they influenced. But but you know that that just extends to almost every artist probably of you know the sixties, seventies, eighties. 
would have been so heavily yeah. Elvis influenced, and then that influence obviously passes on to all the new age artists as well. Yeah, well, those four that you just listed there are obviously four of the most influential bands from their era moving forward. And, mm. and when you mentioned Led Zeppelin, I know when we did our you know episode one of Holsh Fidelity. We spoke about Jimmy Page. His biggest influence was Scotty Moore, who yeah. essentially was there right through Elvis's career as, yeah. as his guitarist, his lead guitarist. So, you know, I think you've got to give Scotty Moore a bit of credit with, with Elvis, I think, because yeah. he was his right-hand man. And it's kind of interesting about Elvis and his band, you know, because Elvis – He's a, he's a one-word name that you say, Elvis, you know who you're talking about. You're not going, oh, maybe they're talking about Elvis Costello. No, you're talking about <laughs> Elvis Elvis. So, you know, his band doesn't get a lot of credit as well. But, mm. you know, most of those band members, like you said, were with him for a long time. So Elvis Presley is a single entity and he was undoubtedly the star, but there was still a band behind him that I don't think it's enough credit because, because of how big the Elvis machine was. Yeah, I, I always thought it must have chopped and changed a lot, but then when I watched that documentary, like Scotty Moore was there, you know, still in the 68 special on stage with him, and yeah. and I'm like, man, this guy's there. You know, that's, that's already 13, 14 years into Elvis's yeah. career. So, and I, I don't know how much longer he did, but as far as I know, they didn't really ever say, you know, Scotty Moore moved on. So I assume he was there for the, for the majority of it. When we talk about, well, we spoke about the band now, Elvis was an incredible performer, incredible voice. It must be said he didn't write much. So I think he only had two songs or less than ten songs that were like he co-wrote. Right. It it was very different in those days because they would just – at different times they just had mail address or something and then writers would just send in their songs and yeah, get, and right. then that you know his agency would look through them and go oh what about this one this one or they'd send through you know a, a test recording and then Elvis and his production would go yeah I'll sing this one and go ahead and and then obviously Colonel Parker pulled it all together so he had complete control over that as well the the other thing that I wanted to discuss as well was the fact that he was playing the guitar a lot. It's it's something that I've never really associated with Elvis once again. He's just this voice. But you see him in that in that comeback special. He's mm. sitting around. He's just jamming with the band. And he's really good. Getting yes. into it, you could see the joy that. On his face. Yeah, it was just yeah jamming with the with he's the like, guys. Oh, I'm back and I'm having a good time and yeah, he's pretty handy on the guitar. Which you know yeah. sometimes you'd you'd have those front men who can just sing and that's that. And but you know he he still had a bit of talent in that realm, which mm. was um, something that I've never really picked up before. Something that I wanted to talk about was my association with Elvis. So I, I've kind of got it's a bit of a strange and regrettable one in a way. My Love of Elvis. I'm not a huge Elvis fan by any means, but my grandma was an absolute fanatical Elvis fan. She had a big picture of him in the white suit 
in her lounge room. She had this at their beach house. They had this absolutely huge portrait of Elvis when he was quite young. And it was so big, it had those eyes that, you know, followed you around the room kind of thing. It was <laughs> yeah. pretty scary when we were kids. You'd go over there and there's this massive picture of Elvis. She just absolutely loved it. And it was kind of this thing where she loved them, loved him so much that growing up it was always this bit of a joke in a way that Grandma just loves Elvis so much. So it's almost like you mentioned at the start, it's hard to dis- disassociate yourself from what Elvis had become in popular culture versus what he actually was as an artist, particularly when you're a kid. So, you know, there was always this big joke about, oh, Grandma loves Elvis and this, that, the other. So, you know, by the time I'm knowing Elvis, he's jumping out of a peanut butter jar and, you know, saying thank you very much. Like, you know, those (laughs) kind of things were just comedic tropes that had really kind of come forward or even were on their way out by the time I was growing up. So it wasn't until a few years ago when Grandma passed away, she died of a very quick illness, like over a week kind of thing. But during that week, you know, she was kind of in hospital, pretty much unresponsive at that stage. But I was kind of playing a bit of Elvis to the kids and something I'd never really gotten too far into, but we were kind of, pl- you know, playing all the old stuff, you know, Hound Dog and all shook up. Loose Wade shit, you know, like that. Yeah, 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 those kind of ones. And the kids are dancing and having a good time. It's now that I've dug a bit deeper after that fact, so I didn't just kind of go with those hits and I kind of got a bit further in, that I realised Grandma was right. Elvis is really good and it's a bit of a regret that I have that I didn't do that beforehand and get to actually discuss that with her, you know, Mm. to go into what her favourite songs were and all those kind of things because, yeah, she just had this deep-seated love for him that I didn't really get to talk with her about and it's only her passing that actually put me into the mm-hmm. the Elvis realm of actually listening to him, which is a bit of a shame. But um, I guess I'm glad that I did go down that route because, yeah, found a lot of songs that I really enjoy. And particularly doing this, there's one song that I really, really enjoy <laughs> and we'll talk about that in a, in a little while. Uh, incredible. And you could talk about it for hours because there's just so much background with him. But we should roll into our fives now. Before yeah. we start on number five, have you got any honourable mentions? Because I've got two here, but let you roll okay. on first. I've got, got a few. And the f- one I've already mentioned, which is That's All Right, which is the first song that he recorded. And that was a song that I did play for the kids a little bit. And it's very basic, but it was of its time as well. Yeah, there's a little bit of a swing to it that I, that I really like. The Unchained Melody version that he does, you know, is quite towards the end of his career. He's kind of... Very, very hefty at that point. He's sweating, but his voice is just so amazing. Oh, my love, my darling, I've hungered for your touch. A long, lonely time. Thank you. 
in that song. It's it's really impressive at that point. And Devil in Disguise was another one, which is just a, a fun little track, which are really kind of odd. So they're the three that I'd recommend. What do you got? Um, well, yeah, actually, I'll roll out with three as well. Like Suspicious Minds, incredible. So yep. peeved that I could not squeeze it in my five. An incredible song that I've played a lot and, and give, given a lot of good memories from. The Impossible Dream, and then in brackets, The Quest, it's called. It's a, it's a gospel track that he's played live on a number of his albums. And the world will be better for this That one man, scorned and covered with scars Still strove with his last ounce of courage To reach the unreachable star It's one that a lot of people probably never heard of. I'd never heard of it until this week and, and it made a push for my five late and didn't quite make it, but it's it's another one of those, like it's gospel but big orchestral backing, really powerful. It only goes for two and a half minutes. So if anyone out there uh, wants to give it a go, that's called The Impossible Dream. And the last one is always on my mind. There's a f- few versions of that out there as well and... It's an incredible track. Willie Nelson's sung it and Pet Shop Boys have sung it, but the version that Elvis released is just next level. I, I always find it's the most magical of them. I'm so sorry I was blind You were always on my mind You were always on my mind Tell me that your sweet love hasn't died Give me Give me one more chance to keep you satisfied Satisfied So yeah, that's that's my three honourable mentions that didn't quite make the cut but I wished I could have Found a spot. All right. All right. Number five for Hulsh. Number five. I'm bracing myself for this one. <laughs> I think I know what it is. Oh, so, yeah, there's been a bit of a banter over the last week, and I've stuck to my guns here. I, I really love yeah. this song. It was released in 1956, and it was on Elvis's debut album, which was uh, self-titled, Elvis Presley. And the song is called Blue Moon. Now, Mm -hmm. this song for me is just incredibly haunting. It it floats along and it's got this backing that Tick cannot stand, this eerie clippity-clop. Yeah, the clip-clop. The clip-clop. And, you know, when you hear it start up, it is, you know, you're like, what is going on here? 
the song itself has this atmosphere that just draws me in over and over again. It, to me, it feels like it could be used in a show like Twin Peaks. I don't know if you remember Twin Peaks or the song no. Falling by Julie Cruz. It's this haunting drift along song about you know and it, and it just takes you back to how laura palmer died and because the, the show revolved around that that mystery and this this song sort of gives me that same vibe that mystery and i've read i haven't looked up any of these but it, there's apparently been a, quite a few powerful moments in movies where this song's been used and I noticed it just in the documentary, The Searcher. When it came on, I'm like, man, I got goosebumps straight away. My wife sitting next to me, she got goosebumps. She was like, oh, I love this song. I said, yeah, same. What? Then I listened to it again and again. And it's it's one of those songs where I don't think you can just have it playing in your car or just on the speaker. I think you need your headphones on or you, you need, like, good stereo playing to sort of to give it justice. And... You know, it's not rock and roll. There's there's hardly any guitar in it. There's this this little quiet strum in the background and, and this circling bass line that, that goes throughout. Blue moon, you saw me standing alone Without a dream in my heart Now, Elvis was only 19 when he, he sung this, and I, I think his voice in this is exceptional. You know, it's when he first came on the scene, you know, that raw talent, and he, he's showing all his range there. And then he also <laughs> he has the verses, but then he has these falsetto moans or wails. I just think it's uh, something a bit different and I honestly think it'll be high rotation for me. Now, can I tell you something about this song? Like, Because we've spoken about this and, and you said, how's this song? And I'm going, are you talking about the same song that I'm looking <laughs> up? Because there was a song, I think it was also on that album, it was called Blue Moon of Kentucky. And I listened to that and go, okay, this song's fine. I don't mind this song. But you're like, no, it's just Blue Moon. It's just a straight-up Blue Moon. So I'm like, okay, listen to it again. I'm hearing the clip-clopping. It's, I, I get what you mean. It's haunting. I've listened to it a lot today, and I can say that I love it. Man, I, I just really love it. I, I just think it's it's got that epic sort of the, theatrical feel to it. And, and yeah, I, I, it's going to be one. All right, well, we'll move on to your number five. Okay, you've already mentioned it in your honourable mentions, so my number five is Suspicious Minds. Boom. Yeah, great song. And this is one of those Elvis songs that I think most people would know, you know, even on the edge of people thinking about Elvis. This is one of those songs that I think stands out as 
potentially one of his most popular songs. It was written and recorded by an artist named Mark James in 1968. The publisher didn't have the money to promote a new artist. So, uh, you know, so they basically it was a commercial flop and it didn't go anywhere. And then I think Elvis was, he was recording in Memphis at one stage and they were talking to this guy and said, you know, do you have any songs for him? And I think they were saying that they wanted something, this mature rock and roll kind of song. Tom Jones was quite big at the time and they put this song forward. And as soon as I read that thing about Tom Jones, I'm like, oh, dude, I could so hear Tom Jones singing this song. Like mm. this would actually rule from Tom Jones as well. It rules from Elvis at the same time. So the guy that wrote it, he wrote it, he was married, but he had a girl that he'd loved which is his childhood sweetheart, and he still was in love with her, but then his wife was suspicious that he still loved his childhood sweetheart, so that's where ah. the suspicious minds came from. It, But obviously he was married, divorce wasn't simple back then, they're caught in a trap, they can't get out. Like He felt like they were all caught in the same trap where I think the childhood sweetheart still loved him, he loved her, he's married, she might have even been married. It's this little world of everyone kind of getting caught up. And then his um, wife gets to hear this song over and over and over. That's awesome. I, th- I think I think it was very sh- – <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so. would have been happy when it was a, a <laughs> number one. very big success. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then this was – yeah, this was a number one hit for him. It was actually his last number one hit oh. as well. So okay. even at that the, – the bit at the end, you know, when it fades out and then kind of comes back. Yeah. thought that was something to do with a copywriting issue where they wanted to kind of go, well, here's the stamp that you put on it. But if you actually listen to the original version and then flow into listening to this version, like we said before, there's almost no difference between the two. But Elvis just goes, ah, fuck, give it to me and I'll I'll make it a hit. <laughs> I'm Elvis, bitch. That's Probably it. said something like that. Because mm. <laughs> this one, was that song after his movie stint? Yeah, so, well, actually going back to that, all of my songs are post-1968. Okay. So I think this was, I think it was released in 1969, this song. But, yeah, everything that I've got comes after 1968. So spoiler alert, but, um, yeah, yeah, I think it's that that recovery album. In fact, most of mine are from within a very, very small period of time. I realised after I'd kind of done the exercise and I was going through the, the numbers, I'm like, yeah, damn. Yeah, well, that, that you know, was a really prolific period for him. Yeah, that's uh, interesting as well because how many bands these days you, you could say, oh, yeah, no, I like all their newest stuff, you know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's the first three albums and then not much after that for the most part. Yeah. And then they had a shit period and then come back and, yeah, go through a really productive period. Yeah. But, Mate. yeah, this song is just so it's so cool. It's, it's, it's catchy. It's got everything you need yeah. in a song, I think. Caught in a trap I can't 
Unbelievable, unbelievable. Uh, the breakdown in the middle of it, you know, when, when he kind of gets into that acapella version, then it builds right back up mm. again. Yeah, oh. it's just a, a really fun song. Yeah. No, I agree completely, mate. Great pick. Number four. Number four. Now, this selection for me is very different when you think Elvis. It's, mm. it's not a, a track that... The, the sound that it, it it brings out is is not an Elvis-style song in any regard, and, and that's a big call when he's got 780 songs. You'd think, okay, he's covered everything. And I guess this is pr- proof that, okay, that he's also done psychedelic rock. So this song is from 1970, and it was on the album Almost in Love, but I think it was originally released in the movie soundtrack called Live a Little, Love a Little. So this was coming near the end of his movie career, and it's called Edge of Reality. Now, this movie is meant to be absolute shite. So it's like another movie. It's an Elvis movie. You don't have to say that. (laughs) But I think as even now, if you had his full canon of movies, this one's like at the bottom close to. Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah, so Elvis dipping his toes into the, the psychedelic rock world and this one in particular for me feels like it could be used in a in a Tarantino film or yes. e- even even a yes. even a James Bond. It could be from a western. So I reckon when you said yeah. Tarantino, absolutely nailed it. I walk along a thin line, darling Dark shadows follow me Here's where life's dream lies disillusion The edge of reality Yeah, it's uh, just it's really cool in that regard. It's like just a little bit left to center for an Elvis song. It's always been a nice change up when I've been going through his list, and the more I've, I've listened to, it, the more I'm like, man, this should be in a movie somewhere, like a good one, not not the one that Elvis actually acted in. And um, <laughs> but 
Yeah, look, it, it, one person described it as a Roy or- Orbison on acid thing, and I'm like, man, that really nails it. It's got this huge orchestral backing through it, and yeah. and it's just I found the horns are great. Yeah, well, when you said that, you know, your your five selections are all post the mm. movie period when he made his comeback. That heavy orchestral backing and and horns and 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 that brass and and so forth. It became a pretty prominent thing in his later mm. career, and man, that you know, it's a big reason why that all those songs in that era sound like grand. Is it that his voice was able to like compete, not compete with, but play alongside such a? Yeah, you know, surely there can't be many voices that can actually go along with an orchestra mm. and actually yeah outshine an orchestra. You know what I mean, like. That it just complimented him so well, didn't it? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Yeah, he, he's he has the ability with his voice to soar to new levels, mm. similar to an orchestra. Yeah. So yeah, so you know, this came out at a time where the world was full of songs that had that edge between real and unreal. It was drugs were everywhere with with artists mm. around this time, nineteen seventy. You know, this was when the Beatles were coming in doing the White Album and and yeah. Led Zepp and and so forth. It was you know, Elvis yeah, was world to when Elvis started. Exactly. It, it's 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 very different to, you know, when he had his his rock and roll and his rockabilly years and and basically dominated because he was, you know, he was the one. But now yeah. in this period, it's there's all these new household names that, you know, eventually go down in, in music history. And this mm. song, it, it was actually a B-side to mm. a song that I won't mention yet because I think we yeah. might talk about it later, but, you know, this was, this was a B-side. You know, unconventional song, really interesting lyrics. It's, it seems to address, like, a bloke that's on the borderline of acute anxiety or even paranoia. With like yeah. strange voices, and I, I do know it. That's, do you reckon that's that play on like because in the song at the end of each line, almost there's that echoing of the lyric. You know, if oh, you're yeah. talking about that psychosis kind of idea. Each line has you know misery, misery. Like yeah, kind of yeah. Every single on that particular note, I love the way that he vocalizes uh, misery and mockery. It's a real Mockery. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it just sounds really cool. I, I particularly love those. He drove me to the point of madness, the brink of misery. If she's not real, then I'm condemned to the edge of reality. The musical arrangement on it is really punctuated by that loud brass and swirling orchestration, and and yeah, Elvis's vocal has like a, a staggered sort of sound to it, like he's punching out mm. certain words. And yeah, that's that's a great way of putting it. Staggered. Yeah, it's uh, it's just different, and 
you know, sometimes, and I think like this is, I'm always a sucker for something that's a little bit different, which is big reason Blue Moon's in there as well. Like, you know, there's an amazing remix of it done by Tame Impala. Oh, okay. So, yeah, it's a, it's Shit, it, I'm definitely going to listen to that. That sounds it's awesome. it's unreal. It, it's a headphone track for sure, and yeah. it's it's got. Are you going to slip some of it in here? I walk along a thin line, darling. Dark shadows follow me. Here's where life's dream lies disillusion. The edge of reality. Really cool, and you know, apart from that, it's it's one of those I don't think a lot of people out there is going to have heard. So don't expect this one to be what you'd think is Exhibit A, Elvis Presley. But who knows? Yeah, someone out there I, might I, I make love it. This song, and and this this came up. This was one of the songs that was just playing in the background at Grandma's funeral, and I actually walked past it, and the little CD player that was there and went, "Shit, I shazammed it." <laughs> wow. And I was like, because, yeah, it was a song that I don't think I'd heard previously and then kind of went, oh, I don't mind this at all. And then, yeah, dug a bit deeper and have listened to it a fair bit since then. And, yeah, it's a great song. Yeah, awesome. Great to see it on your list, I reckon. Okay. Well, your number four, mate. Okay, my number four, this was the song when we started the whole process. I reckon I had as my number one. So, like, just thinking about it, as soon as I said Elvis, I went, this will be my number one song. And we'll kind of work around that. As I've as I've kind of gone on, a few other songs have obviously overtaken it. The song that I've chosen, it was released in 1972, at the start of 1972, by an artist named Arthur Alexander. About nine months later, same deal as my song before, <laughs> Elvis re-recorded it and it. Uh, made, it, made it one of his biggest songs towards the end of his career. And that song is Burn In Love. Yeah, wow. So I think this song is just so fun. It's just got a great beat to it, a good bass line. The, the piano that runs throughout it is really cool. I think this was a song that Elvis didn't particularly like himself. He always struggled to to sing it live. He always had to have the lyric sheet in front of him when he sang it. I just don't think he ever really particularly grabbed onto it. I don't know, because it was towards the end of his hit-making career, I suppose. I think this was got to number two. It was kept off, in fact, it was kept off the top spot by Chuck Berry's My Dingaling, which must go down as one of the worst songs to reach number one. Oh, God, that's a horrible song. But, um, yeah, he just never really got it. So I don't know if it was at the time he was obviously heavily under the influence of drugs and he, you know, he could keep up with his older songs that he'd known for a long time. But this song didn't particularly gel with him, but it does gel with me. It was, it's a pretty cool song, I reckon, and one that the kids love as well. You know, that influence seems to influence a lot of my picks in this is songs that I can play with the kids and, and they really get into this as well. Oh, 
on, on the documentary, Priscilla Presley actually said that he really struggled to record Burning Love because mm. this was in the middle of his biggest period of depression in his life. Mm. And this was such an uplifting song. And it was it was a time where he'd got right back into the gospel music and, you know, this more the faith and and the slower stuff. And then obviously this song was put in front of him and and yeah, she said it was it was painful for him to actually record. That's oh, okay. Yeah. So but then, you know, being the professional he is, he just makes it this amazing like it's an incredible track. And did you I don't know, initially I'd sent you the version of the Arthur Alexander version of it. And I think you said you didn't particularly like that version of it. And I, I actually thought it wasn't too bad. It's very closely mirrors, you know, the version that Elvis did of it. Mm. It's a bit slower. It doesn't have as much swagger as what yeah. Elvis's does. But where you can write the bones of a song, you can perform the bones of a song, but without that star quality, it's just not. It's just not what it mm. could potentially be. Yeah, I think you'd nail it with swagger. Like that's yeah. what Elvis had, and that's what people wanted. And yeah. you know, when they hear that song, they they want that power that. You know, this song is otherworldly because it's it's got Elvis's voice, you know. Yeah. Here's an interesting fact. In 2005, an Australian woman stabbed her partner in the back, thigh and shoulder with a pair of scissors because he played the song too many times. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that guy really likes the song. He'd have it at number one for sure. She would have it about seven eighty, I'd imagine. Yeah, and she's listening from prison, so she's got. Um, she sort of thinks about the same as Elvis. <laughs> it's almost the reverse of my grandma and granddad. Granddad didn't particularly love Elvis. I think it was the same thing that grandma just saturated him with it. But I know this was one of the songs. I think that he particularly he always mocked this song. You know, the hunker hunker burning love. <laughs> uh, but I think that line is just so funny. I'm a hunker hunker burning love. We'll save some time with number three because we will be skipping okay. my number three to sort of protect something that will be announced later in yours. So yeah, the people, the people just want to hear me back to back. You know, you're just giving them what they want. You know, <laughs> hunker, hunker, burn in love. Yeah, that I am. As people have people seen a picture of me? It's just the top of my head that you've seen, but I am a certified. I'm more of a piece of burn and love. I don't think I'm a hunk. <laughs> A slice. Yeah, just a slither of <laughs> slither of burning love. That's me. All right, mate. Well, back it up with number three. 
All right, my number three. And I know that you love this song, so let's just get straight into it. It is In the Ghetto. Oh, yeah, so nice. This is from 1969. I'm pretty sure this was in your list at, at some point. Now, we, we spoke about this a little while ago when we started off. As you said, that gospel Elvis is the best Elvis. I reckon storytelling Elvis is the best Elvis. You know, when he kind of throws something a bit political in, when he tells a story, that's when he's at his best. And this song is is right up that alley. I love the, the circular nature of it. I think it was initially it was meant to be called Vicious Circle. You know, it makes sense in the context of the song, but mm-hmm. the songwriter actually said there's no words that rhyme with circle, so he, <laughs> he threw that to the side. But I'm like, I actually don't think he rhymes with ghetto at any point either, oh. does he? But um, I, what I would say about this song is, we spoke about it before a little bit, is that Elvis's voice is usually one of the most important parts of a song. I think the music in this song is particularly good. It's a very important part of the storytelling, I think, the guitar in particular. As the snow flies On a cold and grey Chicago morning A poor little baby child is born in the ghetto And his mama cries. The drumming in this song as well, it's like a little drummer drummer boy kind of. It's it's really cool as well. It's, oh man, it's a catchy song. And like, it's not often that Elvis gets outshone with someone else's voice for the same song, right? Yeah. But this is one of those occasions where, Cartman off South Park just kills him. <laughs> in the ghetto, on the cold and grey Chicago morning, another little baby child is born in the ghetto, in the ghetto. But obviously you sent through earlier and, and whenever anyone that yeah. lives up here in Queensland thinks of in the ghetto, they always takes them back to Freddie Flintoff in the, the Big Bash. Yeah. Well, that's, that, that is, that's probably my introduction to this song. Yeah, you know, right. reality. That would have been the first time I'd heard any version of this, and he does such a good jo- job of it. He's fielding, he's chasing balls, he gets a six pumped over his head. He's, he's still singing, singing the whole time. <laughs> oh, gee, that's a six. <laughs> <laughs> the actual lyrics of the song, the story of the song, is really powerful as mm. well. You know, it's that whole idea of it's just goes around and round in circles when when you are in the ghetto. You know, mm. all feeds poor almost, and. Yeah, it's beautiful storytelling. And a hungry little boy with a runny nose plays in the street as a cold wind blows in the ghetto. And his hunger burns. So he starts to roam the streets at night and he learns how to steal and he learns how to fight in the ghetto. Then one night in desperation, the young man breaks away. He buys a gun, he steals a car, tries to run, but he don't get far, and his mama cries. As a crowd gathers round, an angry young man face down in the street with a gun in his hand in the ghetto. And as her young man dies, 
On a cold and gray Chicago morning Another little baby child is born In the ghetto No, that's an unreal pick as well. I'm really happy with all three of yours, even though you're only happy with one of mine so far. So, <laughs> no, one, because you haven't even heard. Yeah, 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 I guess that's true. <laughs> okay, well, shall we move on to my number two? Yeah. Number two. Number two. I've just realised I haven't got a lot of his lively stuff and it's it's mm. kind of a bad reflection because I, I love his early stuff, his rockabilly and, you know, even most of his number one hits and so forth. Like, they, mm. I, I really love all, you know, those catchy numbers that he's released. But for some reason I, I keep getting drawn to these particular songs. And number two, now this, when I started this research, similar to what you said this was the song I thought, okay, this is number one for me mm-hmm. and I'll work around it. But number two for me is Can't Help Falling in Love. 1961, the Blue Hawaii soundtrack. Another shite movie, but a great song. And surprisingly, this song was never going to be on that or never exist essentially because the the movie directors didn't like it and mm-hmm. all of Elvis's personnel hated it and it was only that Elvis said no 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 I really want to give this a chop so can yeah, you please okay. let me do it for me the reason this song is so like really extra special for me was the first ever concert I was taken to so my brother who's 10 years older than me so he took me I was 16 years old and he took me to the U2 Zoo TV tour mm. Partway through this concert, he dress for this particular tour, he'd dress up as this character called Mephisto, which was the devil, and he would do these prank calls at these concerts. And this particular night he called Alan Border on the phone and, and what you know, an insane thing to do. Oh, in unbelievable, unbelievable. And, you know, he's given it to Border yeah, saying well, that's classic 90s stuff, isn't it? You got Guido Hatzis and Bono. <laughs> but Border had no idea and Bono's given him some cheek about the Poms being the best cricket team in yeah. the world and then you know borders like you know swearing you know fuck off pretty blunt and anyway the concert was amazing and then it gets to the end of the concert and it is torrential rain like literally you could see them out in the middle because they had a, a stage out in the middle and the the rain was so heavy that you could just make them out in the middle and he's yeah. there singing can't help falling in love and so all this makeup from his Mephisto costumes like running down his face because he's, he's, he's got pictures of him up on the big screen obviously yeah. and this, the music this? Was, this, was this QE2? QE2 yep in yeah. Brisbane and the music's so loud even though all you could see was rain you couldn't hear a drop of it because the speakers were that loud and that clear yeah. so you, you're seeing Bono singing this and then he turns around starts walking back along the the aisle back to the main stage and he stops singing and Elvis takes over halfway through and he's wow. he's up on the big screen and he just sings and I'm getting like I wish I could put this I've got the yeah. biggest goosebumps ever here just hold them up to the microphone, <laughs> the microphone yeah we have to hear them yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the, it's like sandpaper. But it was I, like, it, I was in tears listening to it mm. at the time. And it's one of those songs that really can uh, hit you in the feels in that way. It's just, I don't know, it's, the way Elvis's voice is, you know, real gentle and tender voice mm. in it. And I don't know, it just, tender, to me. Great word. And, great word. Well, it, it just feel like vulnerability with the way he sings yeah. it. 
like we've done all these episodes and so many of these love songs that you know beautiful love songs they're all usually got underlying shit like they're, yeah, they're actually yeah, yeah. angry or they're you know something <laughs> terrible's happened and, and it's a bit sarcastic yeah. but this is just a genuine love song you know really sincere and also for a, a slow ballad love song it's a bloody awesome sing-along song a lot of ballads aren't really made for sing-along as such. There's, there's obviously some great ones out there, but this one in particular really great to sing. And when they, when he recorded this, they ha- it was really painful. They, they kept trying to do it way too slow, and he had to end up doing 29 takes of it, and they, they actually sped it up. So as slow as it is, they, they were, that, that was actually a quicker version than what they had originally. And apparently when Elvis got that final take, he knew then and there that it was an instant classic even though the directors and that didn't sort of know or didn't believe in it so much the the parts i love about it in particular just some little things like his subtle changes to the melody you know like in the chorus in the last line of the chorus he'll like lower his voice a tone to, to how he, he finishes delivering it and obviously you know while his voice is a highlight on the track i think the background singing harmonies in this it's almost like a choir effect and it really like oh no just gives it this presence that is more like a river flows surely to the sea darling so it goes some things are meant to be Okay, my number two. Now, I reckon this, you know, I don't think there's going to be a lot of Elvis traditionalists listening to this podcast. You know, I don't know, but maybe not. This may cause some controversy. (laughs) My number two song is 
a little less conversation, which is the remix from 2001 of the 1968 original. I think I think is the original called a little less conversation. Yeah, yep. as well. Same. Uh, so it's uh, it. So the original, the, the way the song came about, the original was included in Ocean's Eleven, and on the back of this, there's a Dutch musician by the name of Tom Holkenborg. Who's better known as Junkie XL, but better a better known as JXL. So JXL <laughs> versus Elvis remix. Yep. So this came out in two thousand and one. So I'm sixteen at the time. I'm watching a lot of, um, you know, Channel V. Music Max was the other one, I think. So it would have been on heavy rotation there. Rage probably at the time as well. You know, the film clip is really cool for this song as well. So. In, in the 1968 comeback special, they had the big wall of, I don't know if it said Elvis or it was just a big square or whatever, and it was all the different Elvis impersonators mm. were in there kind of doing the... Yeah, you know, the that's so cool for the time. Like, yeah, absolutely. But So the, the film clip for this song is uh, a version of that where there's a lot of different people from different styles of dancing, different ethnicities and all this kind of stuff are, are dancing along to this remixed version of it. But this song just slaps. It slaps in 2001, and I defy to think it doesn't slap today. It is just such a good remix of that song. to the original song damn i love that song too the song on its own is just so cool but just this little extra bit of it being sped up for the most part it's just an emphasis the remix is an emphasis on the music that already existed in 1968 as well there's not a huge amount in there that's been added you know there's some kind of those weird kind of sounds they don't kind of overtake the song it's still got the bones of the original version, but yeah, the speeding up of some of these lyrics are really cool. The lyrics of this song rule as well as an overall idea. <laughs> when you listen to it, you're like, what is Elvis saying here? He's saying, stop fucking talking. <laughs> Elvis is horny. Let's go. Let's get out of here. Come on. Yeah, well, that's because it's in that same movie that yeah. Edge of Reality, and the, I forget what's on the poster, but it's something about... Elvis still digs with the chicks or something, and it's like got six hot girls on the front cover with him. Basically, it's just him. It's just about him picking up women in this yeah. movie. So when you say a little less conversation, I could tell even as you were unreeling it there. I'm like, I know what this means now. Yeah. So yeah, that was that a was huge. Conversation, a little more action, please. Yeah. He's he's polite about it. He's going stop your yapping. Let's get out of here. Come on. Now, did that did that version make number one? 
Yeah, it was number one in 13 different countries. I mean, different, of course, different Right, countries. but you said earlier in the podcast that ah, Suspicious Minds was his final number very one. good point. Well, well I don't know. What do we say? This isn't an Elvis song? Come on, please. <laughs> well, I don't know. It's it, on his, it's on his, well, I guess it is on his number one's album, you know, his top 40, 40, whatever it was. It was a late addition to that because that mm. was released in 2002, that top 30 Elvis things. This was a late addition to it because, yeah, it did become a number one. Yeah, I remember oh, so it hitting yeah, number one. Wrong. Yeah, no, yeah. It's, it was it was huge at the time. And, and, you know, this is this really is an introduction to Elvis for so many people. Grab your coat and let's start walking. feel to it i think there's a lot of you know there's that those backing vocals are still in there as well the cowbell at the start oh, of it that, the cowbell i knew i knew <laughs> that's that's right up your alley <laughs> yeah no i loved yeah, it th- this this is great because it doesn't feel old you know it's not old elvis or anything like that it's it's bringing it to a new generation and i think this is one of the only songs outs- outside of the presley state or the Presley world to have been given authorization to remix mm. an Elvis song. I don't know if that was at the time, whether that's happened since, but I certainly can't think of any. Nah, awesome. Well, that that's, you know, that's a very different. Once again, across our five, there's really been a, a little bit of everything. So mm. a bit of psychedelic rock. I had the Blue Moon sort of crooner. Yeah. Um, and then what was your number three? Oh, you, you had your Burn and Love. At yeah. four, so yeah, no, a bit of everything. Ballad. Oh, in the ghetto. Sorry, I was my. Oh, in the yeah. ghetto. Okay. Oh, we're getting to the point yet. Here we go. Here we go. All right. Number one. Number one. Now, this is an epic track for me, and like all my fives, that they all shuffle around a little bit, but this one really came to the fore when I dug a little bit deeper and, and understood the song a little bit better. It's going to be hard for me to describe, mm-hmm. but hopefully it, it makes some sense. But my number one is called An American Trilogy. Mm-hmm. It was released in 1972. Now, it's a it's a three-part epic, this song. There's it, yep. three distinct parts about it and you know the reason i love it so much is just the grandeur of the the musical mm. arrangement it's, it's one of these songs that sort of swells builds and then it comes back down and then it swells again and just releases all this this grunt it is such an interesting song it is it's interesting it's just it's not a song that grabbed me straight away but the more i've listened to it and i, I still don't think i'm there 100 percent. the more i'm listening to it the more I am loving this song. Yeah, it's. I think Elvis jumped on board with this song because obviously it was previously released as well, and I'll get onto that. But Elvis was very strong about trying to remove these divisions. 
between races and and in that's just yep. been embedded in history and he couldn't understand why everyone was you know here and there not together this was another one of those songs that he felt could help unite I think that's a big reason why people loved Elvis so much. He, he did. He loved everyone. But yeah, this song was originally written and performed by a guy called Mickey Newberry. This track's phenomenal. You, you just got to listen to it. So Mickey Newberry actually has a version of this as well that he had prior. And I sent it to you today and we both gave it a spin. Yep. And I think mm. it's on par with the Elvis version. Yeah, it's amazing. It is amazing. It's incredible. And, you know, once again, the only reason I don't think it was big as is because who's Mickey Newberry? But Elvis. Okay, Elvis is Elvis. But <laughs> to their credit, like both... But, but was this a big song for Elvis as well? Like, Well, you know, I think it's it'd be one of his most popular was. live performances. It's apparently okay. one of his most requested performances by fa- uh, songs by fans when they go to he yep. went to his concerts and you can see why I, th- I don't think it's really made for the studio as much although I haven't said that Mickey mm. Newbury's studio version is is next level as yeah. well so it, there's bits in that that are better than Elvis's version yeah yeah particularly the harmonica. Yes, the harmonica. Like that, that's so cool in the middle of it. We, I was texting you as we as I was listening to it, and I was like, I was already enjoying it, and then I sent you a message, and then as as we were messaging, the harmonica came in. I was like, oh shit, this is where it gets real good. Yeah, I mean the harmonica that comes in that middle section, but then even at the end, his end is very different to Elvis's, but it's still like this amazing music landscape that sort of goes out to, right to the end and but whereas Elvis's is the more the brass orchestral and the, my favorite part in the Elvis version is the flute yeah well that that comes after the flute so it's okay. the the flute it, that leads into the third part and then the yeah the the, the bump bump ah, and like the rumbling of the drums Elvis is saying hallelujah like uh, is there a better is there a better thing <laughs> for Elvis to say? Then hallelujah, do you reckon? Like, oh, I don't know. But damn, that word and Elvis just works so well together. It is awesome. He's just a passionate guy. I, like, I know when he sings this, you can see it on his face. And when we get to your last song, like I think these two songs go hand in hand for how much he shows his yeah. his passion about what he's, yeah, what it you know, means to him in his heart. And... But, yeah, just a little bit of story context behind this one. So in the late 60s, the song Dixie was strongly identified with slavery and other unsavory elements. So there there was this huge effort by uh, certain groups in the governments and, and so forth to ban that song completely. Let's get rid of Dixie because, yes, it was this traditional song, but, you know, now it, people still have some parts of it that, that relate to slavery. But anyway, along comes 
Mickey Newbury, who decides, no, I'm going to take a stand on this because this is part of our history and prove that the beauty of the song is beyond whatever historical connotations there are. Anyway, this one evening in Hollywood, Newbury was asked to perform for this crowd, and this crowd included names Chris Christopherson, Barbara Streisand, Mama Cass, Joan Baez, and most notably the singer and civil rights activist Odetta, who was one of the biggest voices at the time for, you know, getting rid of <laughs> the the slavery oh, okay. context and all the rest of it. And the funny thing was the stage owner at the time, his name was Paul Colby, he went white with fear when, when Mickey told him that he was going to sing this song that had Dixie in it. And yeah. the, the club in Hollywood hadn't even been open one week. <laughs> So it was essentially an opening show and this bloke saying, yeah, no, I'm going to uh, – he said, Mickey, you can't do that. They'll tear this club apart. And then his, Mickey's reply, well, get a shovel because I'm doing it. <laughs> so anyway – so cool. Yeah, so before performing it, Mickey stated – oh, this is what he states to the crowd. Just this week there was a song band. I just cannot understand why people think a song can be damaging – Anybody that loves truth and loves music would have no argument with blowing in the wind, regardless of what Bob Dylan's politics or personality was like, which makes complete sense. I was even thinking like movies, like you watch movies that talk about horrors that have happened in our history Mm. and some of the greatest movies of all time, but they don't say, oh, you can't show it because it shows slavery. It's part of the art, part of the, you know, Mm. demonstrate. But anyway... So after he stated this, the crowd was like whoops of uh, agreement and Mickey continued on talking about the dangers and injustice of banning free speech. Then he he kicked into the song. So it's a loose medley of the Confederate anthem Dixie, which I've mentioned, the slavery folk song All My Trials and a stirring union rallying cry, Battle Hymn of the Public. That's the three parts. Then his wife said, when he got done, you could hear a pin drop in that club. There was not a sound. The silence was a chasm. Then Mama Cass broke it by jumping up from her seat to clap and yell her approval. And at her lead, the entire place erupted with an applause that seemed to last forever. They stood and screamed and hollered like you would not believe, Mickey would later recall. It was the most electrifying performance of my life. So all the violence, all the rage, all the controversy that Dixie had inspired seemed to be swallowed up by the, the majesty of this particular performance. And on stage that night, an American trilogy was born. I think that's just really cool to have that understanding. Yeah. So when you hear the Elvis version as well, you're like, man, there was, this, this song is one that's turned hatred into love. Oh, I wish I was In the land of cotton Old times there are not forgotten Look away, look away Look away, Dixieland Oh, I wish I was in Take my stand to live 
for Dixieland where I was born Early Lord one frosty morn Look away Look away Look away Dixieland song like i said is an american trilogy trilogy is made up of three these three songs dixie the battle of him of the republic and then all my trials which is a lullaby song there's a marching song there's this song about southern usa of the three you know there's three distinct parts to the song Mm. what's your favorite part oh the last part yeah the last part yeah i agree battle him of the public it's just you know that's the part that has the the flute and and then the rumbling drums. Oh, I love the, the rumbling drums. Is probably my favourite part, to be honest, because it, it sounds like it's it starts in the distance, and then it's it's like a, I don't know a field of like horses riding in, and you can hear it like building and building, and yeah. then it kicks. I guess in. that's marching, right? That makes sense. But all. Trials, Lord, soon be over.
But anyway, I'm really happy with that one. And here we go. Your number two and obviously my number three. So my number one, sorry, not my number two. Oh, sorry, number your number one. one. That was my number one. And your number, number one. Three, yeah. and my number three. So I'm gonna let you take it. You from want me here. to announce it. Okay. You're announcing it. you yeah, I want yeah, you to right. to peel it apart, set the, set talk us through, and right, then well so so this song, uh until I started doing this project. I reckon I've never heard before. Now, I was playing, like I said, that uh, top 30, top 30, I think it was 40 in the end, but it was the number one hits of Elvis released in 2002. And I was just going through there. And initially what I said to you is, I'm not going to listen to 780 songs. I'm going to just concentrate on this. If we find anything that's outside of this, we'll let each other know and we'll kind of go from there. Mm. I was in the car driving the kids to school. This song came on. And when I'm driving the kids to school, you know, they're chattering away. It's it's not really a listening environment. But I heard this song and I immediately went, I have to hear this song again. It just grabbed me and has not let go since this point. And I've said it to you, I reckon this song, you're, you're doing your whole uh, your, your 100 songs, this would be in my top 100 for sure. This song has just had such an effect on me and I just can't get enough of it. The song which was on that that album is not the same song that I've chosen here. It's a different version that I've chosen here. But the song is If I Can Dream and the version is from his from his 1968 comeback special. This song is just amazing and everything about it is, well, actually I'll lie, not everything about it is good. The first 12 seconds, if you play that to me, I go, Hmm. Boring. Not really into it. And it's just an instrumental part of it. It's just, it doesn't grab you initially, but the more you listen to it and the more you, you, you hear in his voice, the emotion that he's got in his voice, the passion in his voice. I'm so happy to have done this Elvis project to find this song because this is so good. I was talking to a friend of mine, Kim Mann. She's a massive Elvis fan, has been all her life. She's got an Elvis tattoo and all that kind of stuff. And I was talking to her about this podcast and I'm like, oh, you know, it's so good I found this song. She goes, yeah, that's my favourite song <laughs> as well. And she's yeah. a massive Elvis head. And the more that I've kind of gone into it, the more I realise how important this song actually is for Elvis's career. And it is actually a big song but I don't think it's a well-known song. I think it's a well-known song for people who like Elvis, but mm. for the layperson, it's not very well-known. But once again, storytelling Elvis, political Elvis, this is the best Elvis. And this particular song, it goes back to what you were talking about in American Trilogy, what we spoke to about um, at the very start of the podcast. The song was written pretty soon after Martin Luther King was assassinated and then Robert Kennedy was assassinated as well. And this song was written by a guy named Walter Earl Brown. It's got similarities to the I Have a Dream speech. You know, lyrically, it's talking about why can't we all just get along? Why can't we be, why can't we move forward as one, you know, human race rather than having this segregation of black and white and different political ide ideologies, you know, as a kind of a sister song imagined by John Lennon, you know, it's a similar kind of vibe, mm. a similar kind of message. I just think this is so much more powerful than what Imagine is by John Lennon. It's a bit more, you know, the ideology is good, mm. but this it just has raw emotion when he's singing it. Even in the studio version is the same, but the live version is so much 
Mm. More. I, I read oh. something today that because they they wrote it so quickly, obviously, because mm. I think it was like five months after Martin Luther was assassinated, yeah. but it, it was not very long. It was only merely weeks after Bobby Kennedy got assassinated. It was a bad decade for the Kennedys, wasn't it, for the assassination? So, yes. Um, so Bobby Kennedy was John F's John F Kennedy's brother, and. They were. That's the understatement of the century. It was a bad decade for the Kennedys for assassinations. Yeah, I guess two and <laughs> two and a decade's pretty bad for most families. Yeah, that's got to be a PB. <laughs> um, but yeah, they were apparently like so. It all got pulled together really quickly, and but then when they were doing some of the the takes prior to the the TV special, etc., only like in the first three or four takes. He was like down on his knees singing it. That's how much passion he had. This is just him in the studio. And yeah. some of the backing singers actually had tears crying mm. from how well Elvis executed it. Just, you know, this is with no one watching. It's just, you know. Well, they said that, that he'd never sung with so much emotion. Yeah. And this, these were backup singers that had been with him for a long time as well. So mm. they were recognising this was something else. There must be lights burning brighter somewhere Got to be birds flying higher in a sky more blue if I can dream of a better land Where all my brothers walk hand in hand Tell me why, oh why, oh why Can't my dream come true Oh why, there must be peace And understanding sometimes Strong winds of promise that will blow away all the doubt and fear. If I can dream of a warmer sun where hope keeps shining, oh, everyone tell me why. Oh, why? Oh, why won't that sun?
Thank you. Good night. Yeah. And when you said before that, you know, you'd never heard the song before and, and you landed on it, I think that's one of the greatest moments as a music lover when you find a new track that's that special that you like mm. for your first however many years of your life you've never had it and now yeah. you find it. I, yeah. I, you know, I think that's been the most um it's been there all along it's been there forever yeah that song has existed it's, my whole life yeah and now you've got it for the rest of your life like that's that's yeah. a it's a pretty cool gift for just a, a little that's bit of cool. research some curious curious facts about this is so after colonel parker heard the demo he said this ain't no what he said this ain't alvis's kind of song and after hearing after alvis hearing the demo he said, I'm never going to sing another song I don't believe in. Yes. Like it was almost like his defiance of Colonel Parker uh, saying, nah, I'm not fucking doing this movie. Yeah. You know, my joke was I love that dress, you know. It's yeah. Song. He was at like, the end of his tether with Parker. Like, hey, I love that dress. You know, like <laughs> there'd be a song there that's that dumb kind of thing. But he kind of went, nah, that's not me anymore because, yeah, I hadn't seen the movie at this point. I'd watched probably the first hour of the movie. This is a pretty poignant moment of the movie mm. as well when he when he does sing this. But, yeah, watching the actual live version of this, so the audio is great on its own, but watching the live mm. version really gives you a feel of what he's going through, particularly as he gets to that last little bit when he's like, while well, I can think, while well, I can talk, while well, I can stand, while well, I can walk, mm. while well, I can dream, please let my dreams come true. And then that right now, that just gives me goosebumps every single time. Because there's that little pause in there. He's like, please let my dream. Um, like he just throws yeah. in the come true and then the right now oh. it just yeah there's a gravelliness to his voice as well that you can feel that uh-huh. he means every single part of it like early on lyrically as well where all my brothers walk hand in hand he really sings that with mm-hmm. with this kind of viciousness as well and it's it's just amazing I, I think this episode has just been so great say, thank you very much were you about to say thank you very thank much you. thank you very much <laughs> Oh, man. No, seriously, I think this episode was just so much fun. I literally didn't even have any questions. We just rolled with, with what yeah. was on top of mind and, and it just came out really nicely. And And Elvis is just such an interesting dude to talk about. And I'm just really glad that you got If I Could Dream in your life now. It's fucking awesome. Yeah, it's so, it's so good. <laughs> and hopefully other people do get it from this, from this as well, you know. Listen to it and, and really, yeah, put some headphones on, watch it you know, at the same time and you, you get that full range of experience. It's such a good track. Uh, unreal, mate. All right. Well, thanks for coming on again. We'll see you in another week yes. or so. <laughs> so prior to the episode, Tick and I had a chat about what we'll move on to next and he is going to take on British India, which is a band he has followed through and, and loves. Mm. Is that fair, it's fair to say? Absolutely, yeah. I'm gonna. I'm really looking. It's been on the. It's been on the horizon for a little while now, and yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to jump back into something modern again. Okay. Well, we'll have you back on real soon, mate. But as usual, you were brilliant tonight. 
you know, you know Chippy, but you're still really, really good. Nice. <laughs> All right, everyone. Well, thank you so much for tuning in again for episode 11. Make sure you subscribe, follow the, the podcast, and also jump on to Facebook and join the Holsh Fidelity page it's where we keep you all updated. But other than that, thanks for listening to the podcast. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you very, very much. much. <laughs> oh, she has left the building. <laughs>